you know, you're going to hand over the mewling infant of your work and you don't want somebody who's going to say, well, actually your baby kind of looks like Winston Churchill. <laughs> <laughs> they all do though. <laughs> Hello and welcome. This is the Boundless Book Club, the podcast where we bring you the most thought-provoking books that you should have an opinion on. I am Andrea. And I am Ahlam. From the Emirates Literature Foundation in Dubai, we're going to be sharing some unpopular opinions today. Let us know if you agree or disagree on social media or on email to comms at emiratesliffest.com. We will shortly be joined by writer and editor Alison K. Williams, who will share her unpopular opinion about the old adage that everyone has a book in them. But first, what's your elevator pitch for your unpopular opinion, Aklam? So the book I'm going to be talking about today is Motherhood by Sheila Hetty. And it's the first book that I've ever read of hers. I really, really enjoyed it. And I really loved her style of writing. I, and I, I know she's got um, loads of other books as well, which are have a similar technique and a similar, you know, she offers a different way of thinking about things. And that's my favorite kind of book. Like when, when a book gives me new possibilities and ideas that I never had thought about in that way or at all before. And this book was just full of them. And so if you look through it, you'll see that every other page is like underlined in this book. And when, as, I was, as I was looking through them, because I wanted to pull out my notes for this conversation, I was having trouble like picking the best ones because they're all just so great. Can I just point out that I have some, <laughs> somewhat similar problems? <laughs> Seems like we're fans of unpopular opinions. <laughs> okay, so... I don't know how everyone's going to feel about this, but, um, you know, this is the author's opinion. And I just really agreed or enjoyed uh, a lot of her arguments that she put forward. So it's a semi-fiction and uh, the author herself, obviously, she's a writer and uh, she's married and she has the struggle that all women face with, you know, feeling your biological clock when you don't have children. And, um, you know, she what what she does throughout the book is she uses this this way of asking the universe questions, which is the system where you flip three coins six times for a yes or no answer, which is a technique which is inspired by people who used to consult the I Ching. Kings used to use this in time of war and then regular people used to use it just for their ordinary problems. So I'll give you an example. Is this book a good idea? Yes. Is it time to start it now? Yes. Here in Toronto? Yes. So there's not there's nothing to be worried about. Yes. Yes, there's nothing to be worried about. No. Should I be worried? <laughs> yes. What should I be worried about? My soul? Yes. And it goes on and on. Oh, how interesting. It's so interesting. And throughout the book, she consults like the coins whenever she's facing big questions. And I love that technique. And other things as well, like she listens to her dreams carefully. She tries to really listen to that strong inner voice that's telling her um, certain things. Uh, what I want to do here is, because there's so many great things to tell you about this book, what I want to do is tell you some of the main takeaways from the book or some of the big ideas that she gives, which is why society pressures women, why do women feel this pressure, and what are some really good reasons not to procreate? So the, the unpopular opinion is that you should not necessarily not have, have babies. children. 
Ah, yes. cool. And I'm, okay. <laughs> and I'm actually interested in what you're going to think about a lot of this being that you are a mother. So first of all, uh, societies have evolved with this notion that a woman must have children because she must be occupied. Not that they want a new person in the world, but they want the woman to be doing the work of child rearing more than they want her doing anything else. So if she doesn't have children, what is she going to do instead? Is she threatened? What trouble is she going to be making in the world? Mm. So she gives this amazing example in like, Jewish culture as well because she's she's Jewish and she says uh, she gives a lot of examples but this story really stuck out for me where boys are given names that are purposeful that mean that they're gonna you know they reflect their destinies and what they're gonna be in their lives but girls names aren't really that significant so they're just given any name because you know the what what they want for for a woman's destiny is simply to be a mother and if she's lucky enough that one day she might give birth to a man and he would have a bigger destiny in the world so there's all these stories about how in history societies have evolved and why uh, things are the way that they are and when it comes to women and childbearing now being a woman you can't just say you don't want a child, right? In societies, you have to have some big idea or some big reason why you don't want to have a child. If you're a man, no one's going to ask you. But as a woman, if you're not having a child, then you better figure out and say, you know, what is that arc of your life going to be? What is, you know, no one's asking Oprah why she she doesn't have children because she's Oprah, right? (laughs) So you kind of like really need to convince the world of why you didn't do it and, and have some a really good reason why you didn't. Another idea what, which she has in the book is she talks about her parents and like her mother was a working woman. And she talks about how her father wasn't the right man for her mother for her happiness, but he was the right man for her mother for her work because he offered to be hands-on with the children and would take care of the kids so she could work. And there's this idea, again, that if you want to be a working woman and want to have children, then you better have the right partner (laughs) in a sense that he is willing to be hands-on. Otherwise, um, it gets very, very difficult. Um, Another idea that I really, really love is this egoism of childbearing, which is like, you have children because you want more of yourself in the world. So she says this child, the egoism of childbearing is like the egoism of colonizing. (laughs) And she talks about how she feels really assaulted when she sees people having four, five, six kids in the world because more and more of themselves when when um, when when that's the real like reason, she says that a lot of people procreate because they want you know, more of themselves, more of their husbands. But then she compares it to something really interesting. So she says, when I write a book, I'm also putting out a part of myself in the world. And, you know, I have a cousin who has six kids and I have six books. And are we really any different? Because that is also me putting uh, a part of myself in the world. It was really interesting. Really interesting Um, take. Yeah, and 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 you know she she talks about how um, a lot of women also have children because they want to honor their mothers or honor that relationship that they had with their mothers or to recreate it or and and so she says 
look, I, I love that idea. And I'm also honoring my mother, but not simply by creating a human that, you know, um, I can recreate that relationship with. I honor her by being the values that she taught me, living life in the way that she, uh, her values were. But also when I write my books, my books live in every person who reads them and not simply in one human being that has come out of me. <laughs> That's <laughs> Which so is really interesting. I would mm. never, ever have thought that having children is something you do to honor your mother. So that says a lot, I think, about her family dynamic and her and her yeah. mother's relationship. Because yeah. I don't feel like that's a universal thing. I could be wrong, but I, I, I haven't encountered that before. Yeah. No, I definitely relate to that. And I don't know, maybe, you know, even it might be because I lost my mother, where, where for me, having children is always about recreating that love and bond that doesn't exist anywhere else outside of like a mother and child uh, relationship. Um, or at least, you know, that's what I think. Um, I don't know what the reality is. <laughs> so you're gonna have to tell me <laughs> if yeah. that's true or just a fantasy. <laughs> I feel like having children is one of those things that people don't actually ever go, you know, it's going to be really horrible. You're not going to mm. sleep for a year, possibly 18 years. And then after yeah. that, you'll probably not sleep because you'll worry about them. And it's not that great. Like people don't really tell you that because no, you're not receptive to it. And they're like, Ugh, you'll find out. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there are, I can totally see a lot of downsides to it. Yeah. Uh, including what, what you're saying um, about how it's really difficult. And, and yeah, you do need the right person to, to, look, to have a child with. And because the role of a woman today is very different than what it's ever been like in the yeah. world in the past, right? Um, we are out there just as much, if not more, than men in the world. <laughs> and so what's how, how is it that those expectations haven't changed? But our role in society is hugely different. This is it. We, we dare have bigger dreams. And some, yeah. people, some people want to just be mothers and look after their family as as generations before and that's absolutely fine mm -hmm. but, but it's we now can dream on an individual level and uh, yeah and decide and for it's, ourselves it's, it's interesting the points that you just made because she she does make similar points in that she says okay firstly you know living your life one way is not a political or you know is not a criticism of any other way of living you know one woman's decision about her life is not a statement about someone else's and one person's life is not a political or general statement about how all lives should be and other lives should be able to exist alongside our own without any threat or judgment so by choosing one thing i'm not saying what you chose is wrong it's just that's what's right for me yeah and and when what's also interesting um, I, and I love this point that she made. She said the most womanly problem is not giving oneself enough space or time or not being allowed it. And we let everyone crowd us. We are miserly <laughs> with ourselves when it comes to space and time. And having a child solves that impulse of giving oneself nothing. <laughs> she says to be virtuously miserly towards oneself in exchange for being loved. Having children gets you there fast. And 
it, it's it's such a good point. I mean, if you think about it, and I think about like myself or all the women in our life, we are like, we feel bad about taking time and space in our own lives because of expectations. You know, even if you don't have children, you know, caring for family, spending time with family, um, working even, you know, feeling like yeah. you have to fill that time. Yeah, and 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 I, I don't know if this is at all relevant to your book, but I also feel like, we also fill our time with with essential maintenance that we taught that as women we need to keep up so that we yeah. couldn't possibly go out in the world and be creative with hairy legs for example because yeah. we need to be on top of that as well as our family life and our homes and all this other stuff yeah it's i mean it's so interesting i just feel like there's so much in there that i want to just sit and think about <laughs> yeah. she's given me so many um great points to to really and it's crazy that there are all of these we know all of this now you know we can read about this we can educate ourselves in why women have evolved in this way why society expects us to do these things and actually really look at having children and saying look the you know one of the things she says for example is so I mentioned that she is Jewish and you know, after the experience of the, the Holocaust, they, they have this pressure on women where they have to keep procreating. And she says, let me, let me read. I wanted to read this part to you. She says, rather than repopulating the world, might it not be better to say we've learned from our history about the farthest reaches of cruelty, sadism, and evil. And so in protest, we will make no more people, <laughs> no more people for a hundred years in retaliation for the crimes that were committed against us. We will make no more aggressors and no more victims. And in this way, do a good thing with our womb. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah. And if you think about even like, I mean, the planet struggling so much from an environmental standpoint, we know that, you know, the last thing the planet needs is another human being. <laughs> and as much as you, you know, as many good reasons as you find, there is still that innate pressure of the ticking clock inside, which is like, you know, she says like women have, 30 years between the age of 14 and 44 to do everything, find a man, have their children, you know, start building a career, save up money, have a secret bank account so their husbands don't waste away their life savings. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, it's like 30 years is not enough time to live an entire lifetime. And there's all, just all these pressures that women are faced with. Great. So let's 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 move on to your choice. You know how we always talk about how reading fiction is really important because it breeds empathy and when you step into another person's shoes and you quite literally can look at the world through their eyes. And we think that's important. Um, but I'd like you to consider not being <laughs> so empathetic. Um, for my unpopular opinion, I want you to think about how we talk about other human feelings because for other emotions like anger or fear or desire we allow nuances so we think that it could be good to be angry not if you're angry at a person you beat them to death but if you're angry at a system and it prompts you to to do something meaningful that can be a really good emotion but with with um 
And same with fear. If you feel fear, it could keep you safe and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, however, with empathy, we treat it like it's like the ultimate good. And we don't allow we don't allow nuances for some reason. So my book is called Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion. And it's by an author called Paul Bloom, who's actually a I mentioned him before, I think, on this podcast. His, he's a psychology professor at Yale, and he is super interesting. Mm. And um, just that thing about fiction, I just want to read this little bit to you, where he's saying, uh, you know, we always talk about the power of fiction to stir up empathy, but we tend to forget that other novels push us in different ways. So for every Uncle Tom's Cabin, there's A Birth of the Nation. For every Bleak House, there's Atlas Shrugged. For every color purple, there is a Turner Diaries that white supremacist Timothy McVeigh left in his truck on the way to bombing the Oklahoma building. Every single one of these fictions plays on its readers' empathy. Not just high-minded writers like Dickens, who invite us to sympathize with Little Doris, but also writers of Westerns who present poor, helpless colonizers attacked by awful, violent Native Americans. Mm. So, so I, I mean, it's intuitively a really ridiculous concept to say I want you to be against empathy but Mm -hmm. when you think about it he he um has a point so yeah I I just want to read another short bit for you here which is right at the start of the book it's like on page three he says he sets out what he wants this book to do he says I'm against empathy and one of the goals of this book is to persuade you to be against empathy too um, which I like. He's like really bold. Yeah. And it's exactly the right type of nonfiction book for me. It's really erudite, but it reads like a popular science book. So like if you like Malcolm Gladwell or the Freakonomics mm. books, it's got that same kind of interesting, educated, but accessible pace and forward momentum. Um, yeah. And it's fantastic. And he gives you lots of Lots of examples, including one where he talks about how how uh, there was a there was a um, a project in some town in the U.S. or, or area of the U.S. where the governor um, had signed off on. It was in the 80s. He'd signed off on this early release program for prisoners for mm. care and care and rehabilitation in the community. And then one of those people went on to um, brutally attack a young woman who is, you know, a kind and beautiful young woman, perhaps a school teacher. And she was really someone that they painted a picture of that you could relate to and you could feel the horror of this crime, which meant that they canceled this program mm-hmm. um, because, because of the horror of this crime. And you can, you can completely see how people be outraged. But actually 15 years after the program, they could see that there was much lower rates of um, reoffending. There had been much fewer violent crimes. So the statistics showed that the program, which had been stopped, had been a huge success. But empathy yeah. stopped us from, from letting it continue. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, what he says is, if you absorb the suffering of others as empathy lets you do, you're much less able to help in the long run it's just it's super interesting there's it's divided into six chapters and each one can be read as a like a separate um 
essay. And the first chapter, I mean, even if you just read the first chapter, it's fantastic. It's like the big picture of his argument. Chapter two yeah. is about the psychology and neuroscience of empathy, which again, really interesting. Chapter three, you go into doing good and how you can do good. Um, and then you talk about empathy in intimacy. And because his, his area of study before this has been about morality and um, experience of babies and kids. So, so there's a bit about um, how morality develops in, in children and how even, even if they don't have empathy always, it doesn't stop you from doing what would be the moral thing to do. And then he talks about evil and how actually having less empathy doesn't make you uh, a bad person or a worse person than those who have high levels of empathy. And then yeah. in finally, in chapter six, there's this like manifesto for compassion instead of empathy, saying, you know, we need to we can feel empathy and empathy can be good that we can try to understand how other people feel. But that understanding how other people feel is also a trait of a psychopath. That's how mm -hmm. you manipulate people. Instead of we can, yes, we can try to understand people, but then what we do with it, we need to try to apply a layer of rationality and think bigger right. than just the individual. And it's, I mean, it's super, super interesting. Like you were saying about how you want to have a book where you come out and you have so many different strands to pull at to explore new ways of thinking. This yeah. is that. It's oh, really, amazing. really great. Um, it makes me think like, you know, when they say too much of anything is not good, even drinking too much water as, as good as <laughs> staying hydrated this, but drinking too much water can drain you. Yeah. He, he tells this, um, this story about how um, there was this terrible, terrible school shooting in Sandy Hook, which is a, quite a, you know, a reasonably affluent white American place and in the wake of that people donated so much to the victims of Sandy Hook that they had to hire administrators to and warehouses to accept this stuff but in the same in that whole year they had had more shootings more people had died in Chicago than in this one school shooting in Sandy Hook but nobody was donating to Chicago because it wasn't People didn't mm. relate to it and didn't feel empathy because empathy um, happens much more naturally, according to, you know, our Darwinian instincts when it's people that we can relate to. So they look from us or mm. come from a similar background to us or, um, True. you know, it could be us. Or an issue that you've interacted with in your surrounding, you know, if it's an issue that you've never seen or people that, you know, never been in your surrounding they're less likely to affect you as human beings yeah so I really really recommend this book I think it's fantastic that's awesome I think we should do a book swap because I really want to read yours and you should read mine <laughs> yes I'm done with that we are now joined by Alison K Williams writer editor speaker and writing coach if you have ever considered writing a book you need someone like her in your corner she has even written a book about how to get your book into shape called Seven Drafts, Self-Edit Like a Pro, From Blank Page to Book, which is coming out later this year. Alison, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Please tell us about your unpopular opinion. Well, my unpopular opinion is that 
while everyone has a story to tell, not everyone has a book to write. And uh, of those books that people do write, not every book is worthy of being published. And this is not about gatekeeping or about saying, you know, oh, you know, certain people get to write and certain other people don't get to be heard. It's about understanding the craft that you'd like to be part of. You know, there's, there's room in dance for ballet and hip hop and twerking and lyrical competition dancers in inappropriate outfits for their age, but <laughs> they all study their craft. They all have a sense of lineage. And with writing, the, the bars to entry are very low right now. Pretty much anyone can write a book. They, they all have access to a computer with Microsoft Word or with Google Docs, which is free. Uh, we all have the ability now to follow agents on Twitter and find out how to get in touch with them. We all have the ability now to email our submission to an agent or a publisher, which you know you used to have to print out your stuff and then you had to walk down to the post office. And in America, where I'm from, you had to purchase special postage for it. You had to include a self-addressed stamped envelope. And all of those were little barriers that made you go, okay, is this really the finished version of my book that I would like to waste 300 sheets of paper on? Is this really the finished version of my book that I want to spend $4.50 to mail? And now because those barriers are so low, people think, oh, well, I have a story to tell. And they all think that the idea is the important part. I mean, I, I don't know if either one of you also writes books. Andrea, you write books, right? You, you and I have, have talked I about I try, yeah. <laughs> and I am certain that you have had at least one person walk up to you at a party and say, I have a great idea for a book. You write it and we'll split the money. As if having the idea is the hard part. You know, and, and having the idea is not the hard part. Having the idea is the easy part. You can poop out five great book <laughs> ideas before breakfast. <laughs> it's execution that's the hard part. And people who are excited about their ideas are not always able to execute those ideas in a way that communicates it clearly to other people. Because when we're writing, our head fills in everything that's not on the page. I feel like that is such a true statement for writing books, but also for absolutely everything in life, that having the idea is very, very different from executing it. Because I have that idea about home improvements. Wouldn't it have been great if we had a new staircase? You know, it's not. And I'm sure that people who, uh, people who do other skills, like I bet people who make apps, get this all the time. I have a great idea for an app. Well, yeah, it's going to take six months to build it and beta test it and make sure that the databases line up correctly. You know, it's not, it's not enough just to think of something. And when I meet these authors, I almost always meet them, bless their hearts, because they send me their manuscript. I'm, I'm a professional editor and I help authors with their manuscripts. They send me their manuscript and the key phrase is, all it needs is a quick proofread. Mm -hmm. And that's like, that's like the Jaws theme song right there. You know, Donna, the, the shark is moving towards me in the water. And I know that an unfinished, extremely rough draft is headed my way. Because people who have actually put the time in, 
they tend to send their manuscripts with, okay, I've done the best I can. This is like draft 17. I've only had 14 other people read it and give me feedback. I've only been to six writing workshops to refine it and work on it. Please tell me, is any of it any good at all? You know, whereas when I get all it needs is a quick proofread, it is always a first draft. And it's because when we read books, reading books for pleasure is a different skill set than reading a book to see how it's put together. Just like looking at a painting is not the same thing as walking up super close and going, oh, this entire painting is made of tiny dots. And this section that looks green from across the room is actually blue and yellow when I get within six inches of the canvas. They read a book and they know how reading a book makes them feel but they have not read the book more than once and gone, oh, this is how the author is setting it up so that I love this character. And then suddenly in chapter six, I hate this character. And that's a really key thing to ask yourself. If you really want to write a book, have you ever read a book more than once and watched for how the writer is doing what they're doing? Maybe even jotted down a few notes. Um, every now and then I'll buy a battered copy of a book at a charity sale and mark it up with pen in the margins and go, oh, this is where the dramatic twist from act one into act two goes and then try to apply that to my own work. That's, um, that's so interesting. So for those of us who do tinker with words, thinking that at one stage they might start to make sense. Is there some kind of litmus test to, to gauge if it's actually something that we should just keep to ourselves or bother trying to share with the world? Well, I think you should absolutely bother to try. You should just know that it's going to take a lot more tries than you think. And so if you are sitting down with, let's call it your first draft, you have, uh, you have dreamed the incredible inciting incident to this story, you have woken up consumed with the passion to write, and you have written your 47,000 words, which is not long enough to be a whole book, or you have written your 175,000 words, which is far too long to be a book. You then got to take a step back and ask yourself, number one, have you read other books in this category? And have you read them with thought? How long are they? What kind of characters are in them? How many points of view are they told from? How many chapters are they? How clear is the story to follow? And if there is a big twist, how many twists are there? The second question I would ask is, is there a villain who has done the hero wrong and has no redeeming characteristics whatsoever? Uh, if you're in a memoir, this is probably your mother. Uh, if you are writing a romance novel, it's the evil ex-girlfriend. But either way, there is going to be some sort of character in there who their entire purpose on the page is to make the hero of the story look like a wronged innocent. And as I have said to many people who have written a, a romance novel with lots of potential, you got to get back in there and give that ex-girlfriend a personality and a reason to genuinely believe she has been wronged that we all believe in before she can stalk the heroine unremittingly for 87 pages. <laughs> you know, so if there is, if there's a villain with no redeeming characteristics, chances are really good. You are not on your final draft yet. You are not ready to show this book to the world. And the third question I'd say is, is Mary Sue the hero of the story. And you will know Mary Sue when you see her because Mary Sue 
has very special eyes of a very beautiful and unusual color. Mary Sue has hair of a very special, beautiful and unusual color. Or Mary Sue is completely plain looking, but surprisingly charming and beautiful to everyone she meets who tells her how beautiful she is, but she doesn't believe it. Mary Sue is either graceful like a ninja or she's adorably klutzy. Mary Sue is magically brilliant at anything she takes up. She can hack into the mainframe, she can talk to animals, and she can find the secret passage that nobody else knows where it is. Mary Sue's only fault is that she has a bad temper, but later on it always turns out that she was right and that the other people were wrong. You know, and so Mary Sue is this idea of this like, unbelievably perfect hero character, usually someone who's directly standing in for the author's perception of themselves. And it's not interesting because everything bad that happened to Mary Sue, every mistake she's ever made has been in her backstory. And so she starts the novel already tragically wounded rather than letting us watch her take actions and become wounded from her actions. And so it's watching the person start the race and they already have the trophy. It's not fun. It's not interesting. There's nothing to learn about this person. Oh, they're beautiful and special and magical and perfect. You know, and that said, Twilight centers around a character who is a Mary Sue. And that appealed very much to a particular set of readers because they could imagine himself and their, themselves in her place. And so the challenge is, as you, the author, do you want to take the chance of winning that lottery and being the next Twilight? Or do you want to write something good? I was just wondering, this unpopular opinion, how does it usually go down with when you, I imagine you have to tell people sometimes because you're known as the unkind editor, that's what you call yourself. I am indeed. Has that conversation ever gone really badly? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've been very lucky that it doesn't always go that badly. Um, but I've had a couple of experiences where the author was expecting to hear, yes, all it needs is a quick proofread. Here is your finished book. Go forth and publish. And I had a, a, a gentleman writer who was deeply upset by that. And it was funny because his first thing was, you know, well, I bet nobody else who you edit wants to throw their book in the garbage and never write again. And I'm like, no, we, we all kind of feel like that as soon as we get our edits back. And what makes a writer is, can you breathe deeply, take a couple of days to ponder the feedback and dive back in and fix the stuff you agree with and push back against the stuff you don't agree with, you know, because very often your reader might be wrong about what the problem is. They're almost always right about where the problem is. And so even if you disagree, oh, this character doesn't need to be more likable, but we do need to have a reason to want to keep reading with them after that scene on page six. And I, I don't know if that guy ever did go back and do another draft of his book because it had a lot of potential, but it was really bad. You know, and, and I didn't put it in those words, but I did point out a lot of the problems. And the other thing that I see, and I see this predominantly with um, retired white men of a certain generation whose goal is to write a book now that they have finished their other career where they were in charge of things and their secretary typed things and so they never had to learn spelling. And the challenge that I get there is we'll do five or six rounds of revision on a book and they keep changing things back to the not good that they were before we had a conversation about this plot point and discovered why it needed to be another way. And 
you know, I can't, I can't fix that. It's not my job to rewrite someone's book for them. But I have fired a couple of clients because I just got tired of seeing the manuscript come back worse every time. You know, I want to work with somebody who's going to learn and I will put all of my time and heart and attention into that. But the books that are bad are the books where the author wants to shove them at us and say, this is done, you must read it now instead of offering it like the beautiful gift that so many authors have to offer after they have put in the time and attention necessary to write a beautiful book and share it with the world. That is, um, that is so great. I hope, uh, I hope you ask for payment before you give the feedback, just in case. <laughs> yeah, first time clients always pay a deposit. <laughs> but I'm also really lucky that at this point, I have relationships with a number of clients where they will, you know, send me the five chapters that they have just put together and say, hey, is this worth working on? Should I keep going on this? And I can say, oh, yeah, this thread is really fascinating. You know, keep playing with this theme right here. I love this particular character. Can't wait to spend more time with them. And it sometimes does help to bounce your idea, not necessarily off a professional editor. I mean, you you don't have to spend money to get this kind of opinion. But if you've got a couple of friends who you know will be reasonably kind to you because you know, you're going to hand over the mewling infant of your work and you don't want somebody who's going to say, well, actually your baby kind of looks like Winston Churchill. <laughs> so many they babies all do, do though. <laughs> you want someone who's going to say, you know, wow, the questions I would have are, which of these characters are we going to like enough to spend time with them? The question I have is, why is the ex-girlfriend so mean and nasty? Has something happened to her in the past that we need to know about? You know, and if you're able to cultivate a friendship with someone you know who likes books and likes reading and say to them, hey, I don't want to know if it's good or bad. I just want to know what questions do you have and which parts of it would make you want to keep reading. And that can be really helpful to get that outside opinion so that you go, oh, the part where this person is really nice is actually only in my head and not on the page. I need to figure out how to get that on the page. And that can be, that can be great to help you move forward as a writer with a book that somebody actually wants to read. <laughs> Maybe yeah. even a book that's worthy of a commercial publishing deal. But I think that's all we have time for today. Yeah. And I'll just, I'm so glad to, to be on your show. And, and remember, writers, you don't have to follow the rules, but you've got to know them so that if you're breaking them, you're breaking them on purpose. Thanks for tuning in. And don't forget to send us your comments. We have a short survey we'd love for you to fill out and you'll have a chance to win a great stack of signed books. The link is in the show notes. That's all we have time for today. Stay tuned for the next episode, which will be on books about music and the people who make it. Bye.